1: Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're continuing our series today. If you'll turn to the book of Romans, chapter 7. And as you turn there, we'll just do a quick catch up of what we've learned so far. In chapter 6, Paul talks about sanctification and uh, he talks about positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. Positional sanctification being that. That God, uh, when we accept Him uh, as Lord and Savior, uh, when when we are saved by faith, uh, uh, He declares you and I holy. He sets us apart. He says that we are sanctified, that we are holy. Progressive sanctification is is that process by which every day you and I walk and strive to become more like Christ. And Paul tells us that. in chapter six, that we're no longer to be slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. That we are dead in our sins, right? We are dead to sin uh, because we died in Christ, and we have been risen with new life. Uh, so we are now dead to sin, and we don't have to be slaves to sin. And he talks about how uh, you know our decision, a decision as it relates to sin, is an act of our will. Uh, and that, uh, you know, we can say no to sin. We are to reckon ourselves that we belong to Christ, that we are holy, that we are set apart, that we are to present ourselves as slaves to righteousness. We are to make a conscious decision that we are going to serve God and walk a holy life. Walk on the outside the internal reality which is that you and I are holy and that we now belong to God. And Paul, uh, you know, talks about um, that uh, the law and how the law has its purpose. Uh, and, and when I say the law this morning, I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments. Uh, I'm not just talking about the law given to Moses. I'm also talking about that moral law that is in place on every single human being, that knowledge of right and wrong, that innate knowledge of, of, of right and and wrong. So when you hear me talk about the law today, I am talking about the law, uh, you know, the, the Mosaic law, uh, but I'm also talking about the moral law. Remember, as we studied in chapter 1, that God has written upon man, every single person, a knowledge of right and wrong. His law is upon our hearts, uh, and even a rudimentary understanding of the law. If we violate any of its tenets, it makes us guilty before God. And so uh, Paul is going to anticipate everything we've discussed up to this point that his readers, uh, specifically his Jewish readers, were going to have questions. Like are you saying the law is bad? Are you saying the law is good? Are you saying the law is useful? Are you saying the law is useless? You know, because the law was very important to them, right? It was a part of their identity. You know, the law was critical, of uh, the Pharisees taught them that in order to be righteous, they had to obey the law. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was uh, drilled into them uh, that, you know, uh, this obedience uh, to the law. Uh, and so they would have had legitimate questions like, Paul, are you trying to say uh, that the law doesn't matter or that the law is bad? And so Paul is going to take him, Romans chapter 7. Uh, he's going to talk about uh, the law. And what it means to the believer in greater detail, he's going to use a a couple of analogies here. And remember when he used the analogy in in chapter 6 about being slaves and how he said that that was... Due to their lack of maturity, he was talking like a man because he was trying to help them to understand this deep theological concept that they no longer uh, belong to sin, but they now belong uh, to God. Well, he's going to do something similar in chapter 7. He's going to use a worldly example to explain how you and I, and how the or how the law, relates to grace and salvation by faith alone. So let's look now at uh, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brethren, for uh, I speak to those who know the law. So here he goes. Brethren, I'm speaking to those who know the law. Now he's talking, obviously, to the Jews who have the Mosaic law. But he's also talking about you and I uh, who have the law of God written upon our hearts. That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law or her of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another. To him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the latter. Now there is a lot to unpack there. So bear with me as we go through this. All right? Uh, So, uh, what he's saying is he's using an example here uh, of uh, a marriage. Uh, Now, we're not getting into the uh, particulars of adultery or the particulars of uh, divorce or anything of that nature. He's uh, taking a marriage where both parties uh, are in good standing, okay? But he's saying that in marriage, there's a contract, there's a law of marriage, right? Right? Uh, so when you and I are married, uh, we are making a contract with the other person, and we are making a covenant with them and a covenant with God for death do, until death do us part. Right? Uh, so that uh, when God, when we make that covenant, that is serious business. And, uh, and, and it was considered, if you as a woman married a man or went to be with a man and your husband was still alive, that was adultery, and you were breaking the law. Alright? Now, what he's doing is he's trying to explain that, and he says that now if the husband dies, the woman can go and marry again without committing adultery. Do you see what I'm saying? According to the law. But as long as the husband is alive, she's bound to the husband and she's bound to the covenant, the law Uh, that they uh, agreed to when they were married. But if he dies, she's now free from that law. All right? And what he's trying to do is he's trying to explain to his readers that we are free by grace because you and I died in Christ. And because we died in Christ, we died to the law so that we could be buried to another, which is Jesus. So no longer are we looking to the law to save us, protect us, keep us, but we're looking to Christ to save us, protect us, and keep us, right? So just like a woman, uh, as the Bible says, she submits herself to her husband, right? Not as lesser, but as a uh, uh, someone who is respecting his authority, right? Uh, and his headship, and his leadership in the household, and he, you know, uh, traditionally the woman uh, is, is is protected by her husband, provided for by her husband. The husband is there, right, in that law. Uh, but she is not to seek protection, provision, any of those things outside of her husband. Right, The minute that a woman seeks those items that are provided by her husband from another man, she is committing adultery and breaking that law. You and I, what Paul is trying to say here is that we are no longer, because we died in Christ, we died to the law, we no longer have to strive, uh, it's no longer on us to live righteous enough according to the law. Does that make sense? Because we are now dead to the law and we now are alive in Christ, meaning that we can now uh, put our faith, our faith is in him to protect us, to keep us, to save us. Not the law to save us, but Christ to save us. Does that make sense? That's why idolatry is so critical to God, right? He hates idolatry, right? Because in and of itself, when you and I, die to the law, and we marry Christ, when you and I commit idolatry, we're, we're essentially committing adultery as well, against Christ. We are His bride. Okay? And so, when you and I seek anything outside of God to save ourselves, we are committing idolatry. Right? But the very reason that you and I no longer have to seek our salvation in the law... Is because Christ died, and we died with Him, and we are raised to life with Him. Does that make sense? Nod with me if that kind of makes sense. Okay, all right. I know there's a lot in there, right? And I had to read and really study this, especially the first time, to unpack that for myself to understand what Paul was trying to say. So we uh, now let's uh, continue to look at. Uh, let's look now at verse four. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law, through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So therefore, the logical conclusion that of what he's trying to say as it relates uh, in his analogy to marriage uh, between a husband and a wife is this. That we have become dead. Now, that phrase become dead in the Greek signifies two things. It emphasizes two points. One, that that death happened in a single point in time. Meaning that you and I died once in Christ and are raised in Him. Right? So, we're saved. when We die in Christ. That is a single point. Action that happens when you accept Christ as Lord and Savior. You are now dead. You are associated with his death. You have died in Christ. And so the law and sin you are now free from. And you are free to marry another. The second is this. God is the one who initiated the death. You and I cannot die in Christ by our own free will. Now, when you and I accept Christ as Lord and Savior, right? As part of that, we are uh, we die in Christ. It's called regeneration, the new birth. We die and we're made alive. I can't do it on my own, just like I can't be justified on my own. I can't be righteous on my own. I can't be sanctified on my own, right? I cannot be regenerated on my own. God does that For you and I. Right? So when by faith we confess Christ as Lord, part of that is we die and are reborn. That's regeneration. That is a miracle. Sometime I will preach a message uh, or a series on salvation and the steps as it relates to salvation. All those things that God does for us, what you and I are saved that we can't do for ourselves, which is why we are no longer bound to the law and under sin. Right? Uh, There there are very specific theological concepts, things that God does for you and I, independent of who we are, just because of his grace and his mercy Mm -hmm. and faith in him. All right, so we become dead once. God is the one who initiated. Literally become dead there is translated, you were made to die. All right, so this is something that happens that God himself initiates. All right, now in response to our faith in Christ, he makes us forever dead to the condemnation and the penalty of the law. All right, and uh, so let's, let's uh, continue here. Verse 5, for when we're in flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Alright, so, that word bear fruit there, okay, it means that, you know, uh, we are to bear fruit to life, and we're not to bear fruit to death. So, our actions, that act of our will, is supposed to produce godly things, not death. But if we're walking in sin, what is it? Wages of sin is death. We are no longer to produce fruit, sinful, rebellious fruit that leads to death. But while we were under the law, that of course is what was happening. When you and I were controlled by the flesh, before we accept Christ as Lord and Savior, right? Then you and I will bear fruit to death. This is before a man is saved. All right? And so we are given over. Uh, to sinful passions, that overwhelming impulse to do evil, to think about evil, that is characterized by Paul as being in the flesh. And then he says also in verse 5, he says, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. Now this is interesting. Because the law is not evil, right? So then how can the law arouse sinful passions? The unbeliever rebel are unbelievers. Rebellious nature is awakened when restrictions are placed on him or her. Mm -hmm. Now, this is evident when you're a kid. And mom says, don't do this. And you, out of curiosity and rebelliousness, because mom said not to or dad said not to, you are now tempted to do it. Right? This is evident in all of our lives, even, even now. Right in society, when there is a law, we are tempted to break the law. How many of you can't do the speed limit? (laughs) Hate the speed limit. Despise the speed limit. Hate it. Right? The speed limit is a suggestion to me. You know what I'm saying? At a minimum, I'm doing five to ten over. Minimum. Minimum. Right? Uh. It is you and I, when we see the law, especially as it relates to when, before we accept Christ as Lord and Savior, that instruction to not do something actually awakens something in our flesh to actually want to do it. And all of us can relate to that. Right? That flesh says, my goodness, I'm not supposed to touch that, but more I sure want to now. Wasn't even thinking about it before, but you said don't. And now I feel like i got to do it. Right? Uh, so in the flesh, man, the law, the moral law, any law in our heart, when we know it, it actually, we are then want to awaken in as Our flesh says, I want to do this. It is a rebelliousness. It is a result of the fall of Adam. This flesh. Sin, as we talked about last week, the last remnants is in this body. And we're going to talk more about that here in chapter 7. Alright, so we are roused by the law, meaning sinful man uh, is is awakened by the law and actually wants to do the things and rebel against the restrictions placed on him, which will lead again to that fruit of death. (laughs) Verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law. Alright? This is not freedom to do what God forbids. But it is freedom from the liability and penalties of the law. So we are diver- delivered from the consequences of being disobedient to the law. Why? Because God knows that you and I cannot be obedient enough to be saved. Now it is possible, technically, I guess, that if you and I could be perfect and never mess up, you could be righteous. But guess what? I messed up way long ago. The first time I thought a lustful thought or the first time that I stole the cookie off the counter and Mom told me not to. You know what I'm saying? All of us have sinned, okay? And none of us can be obedient to the law uh, in every aspect. It is impossible for us. Only one person came upon this earth and was able to fulfill the law and never sinned, and that was Jesus Christ, the only person, which is what makes this sacrifice special, and why it could save you and I. Alright, so we are delivered from the law, we are free from its consequences, having died to what we were held by, so we are dead to the consequences, because we are dead in Christ so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the latter now this word here serve is the verb form of the word bond servant but here he is talking about it as referring to us as slaves we are to serve we are now slaves to serve in the newness of spirit we belong to God he bought us with a price okay so this isn't, this isn't a willingness to obey. This is we belong, bought, paid for, he served. We, we belong to him. And so we serve him in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Right? So that state of mind, that being uh, sanctified and filled with the spirit produces, it is, uh, we're characterized by that new desire and ability to keep the law. Right? What is the law summed up in two commandments? Love God, love people. Right? They asked Jesus, uh, what is uh, the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God. And then the second, love people. That's all of the, he said, all of the law of everything that is in the Old Testament can be summed up in those two things. Okay? So not the, the oldness of the letter, the external written law of God It produced only hostility and condemnation. Not because the law is bad, but because we are. The law is doing its job. Right? So the law is not evil, and we're going to talk more about that here in a moment. Now, let me say, uh, you know, we live in a society today where we have started to pervert where we believe that uh, those the law is evil, right? Uh, in our minds, we, we, are, we reject authority, and we re- in selfishness and self-centeredness, we reject authority. And people who do wrong things are actually celebrated, and the people who enforce the law are criticized and actually uh, ridiculed, right? So we we've, we've kind of got to this place. In our society, where we actually are saying, the laws that we don't like, right, they're evil. And we're even celebrating people who break the laws that we don't like and suffer the consequences. Okay? That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that we can pick the laws that we don't like, right, and rebel against it. What he's saying is, is that the law is not bad. We're just no longer bound by the consequences of the law because of Christ's death. All right? Let's look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. You guys remember that certainly not phrase uh, from before. Absolutely not. But on the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covenantness, unless the law has said, you shall not covet, right? So without the moral law of God and also the written law of God, you and I would not know what sin was and would not know how depraved we were and would not know how much we needed God. That is the function of the law. The function of the law is to show us how depraved we are, how lost we are, so that we'll call upon Christ as Lord and Savior and turn to God. So the law is not evil. The law is a tool used by God to draw men or push men to him. Okay? So no, the law isn't evil, right? I would not have known sin. I would not have known how desperate I was before God. I would not have known how lost I was before God if it had not been for the law. And Paul, you'll notice here, is going to start using I. He is actually going to start using that pronoun, personal pronoun I, throughout the rest of chapter 7. Because he's going to be talking about his own experience as an example of what is true of unredeemed mankind and what is true of Christians. Okay? Paul, remember, was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Right? He was the cream of the crop. He was zealous To enforce what he believed was was the right thing was that law of God and forced it to the point that all Christians, he was rounding them up, having them put in jail, killed, taking their property, everything. He knew the law inward, outward, frontward, backwards, all the way around. Uh, He knew the law, yet he was not saved. He did not know Christ. So he's going to talk about that here now. Verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Now, so he says here first, but sin, taking the opportunity by the commandment. The word opportunity there describes a starting point or a base of operation. So, basically, before you go to mountain climb Mount Everest, you set up a base camp, right? To launch your uh, journey up the mountain, okay? All your supplies, everything, you get everything organized, and from there you launch your journey, right? Sin is right here in our flesh, right? Until we accept Christ as Lord and Savior and dominate us, It controls us. It has a hold on us. It's made its base camp right here. And from here, it can affect everything in our lives. Right? It launches all those evil desires and rebelliousness. All that stuff, base camp, is right here. All right? And sin uses the specific requirements of the law as a base of operation from which to launch its evil work. Now, confronted by God's law, the sinner's rebellious nature finds the forbidden thing more attractive, not because it's inherently attractive, but because it furnishes an opportunity to assert one's self-will. What is the biggest reason your child disobeys you? Self-will, not because they think what they uh, that you're wrong necessarily. Your child knows, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's right and what's wrong. Your child knows that you have more experience down deep inside. Your child knows that, uh, you know, when you tell them not to do something that's dangerous, they know not to do it. Why do they do it? Because they want to show you that they're in control. Mm-hmm. Self-will. Mm-hmm. Right? And every person does not know Christ is in safety, Right? We allow our self-will to control us, and sin uses that that selfishness and self-centeredness to rebel against God. Not because uh, we don't understand the consequences to becoming an alcoholic, or doing drugs, right? Or speeding on the highway and driving crazy or recklessly, but because we want to be in control. Okay, so that's what Paul is saying here. For, apart from the law, sin was dead, not lifeless or non-existent, but dormant. When the law comes, sin becomes fully active and overwhelms the sinner. He is just reiterating what he started saying earlier in chapter 7, okay? That when sin, or when the law comes, it arouses in us this desire, overwhelming desire in the unregenerate person to do evil to disobey the law, to assert one's own will. I'm in charge. I'll use Curtis as an example. Uh, Before Curtis uh, graduated high school, it had gotten rough around our household. Uh, There's only one alpha male in our household. Believe it or not, it's me. And uh, Curtis decided that he was going to be the alpha male. And so him and I had some serious uh, issues for his senior year of high school, okay, before he went off to college. Bad, it got bad. Why? Because he was telling me, Dad, I'm 18 years old, I don't have to do what you say anymore. Right? And so him and I were fighting and arguing, and I mean, it it got really bad to the point where I was ready to kick him out of my house. That's how rebellious he was being towards us. And so that he was asserting his will over mine just because he wanted to show me he could. Now for years he was fine living under my rules. But for something, something happened where he decided that he no longer had to live under our rules and our household. And he rebelled. And that's what sinful man does. We rebel against God, rebel against authorities over us to assert our will, to show that we're in control. All right, let's now look at verse nine. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, came said revive and I died. Now this is interesting, all right? So Paul says, I, I uh, um, he says there in verse nine, I was alive once without the law. So this is not an ignorance or a lack of concern for the law, but basically he had an external and imperfect conception of the law. Paul is referring to himself. Why? He had a perverted view, an imperfect view of the law. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees made all kinds of rules to help them to be obedient to the other rules. They put all these things in place. And they put so much focus on the law and no relationship with God. They, they were so outwardly religious, and they forsook the inward relationship. And Paul was zealous, and he had an imperfect understanding of the law. And so uh, he, it, it, it wasn't that the law didn't exist. It was he just didn't understand the law in the way that it was meant to operate, to drive us toward Christ not a means of salvation in and of itself, all right? So without the law, but when the command commandment came, sin revived and I died, all right? So what happened is, is when Paul began to understand that the true requirements of God's law, at some point he began to think about those things prior to his conversion. He started thinking, uh, hmm, Maybe I got this wrong. He started having doubts, right? So he began to understand the true requirements of God's moral law. And once he did, he realized his true condition as a desperately wicked sinner. And this uh, Luke talks about in the book of Acts as people being cut to the heart when they heard the gospel and they repented. So Paul is saying... I thought everything was going peachy. I was a Pharisee. I was in church. I was doing my thing. I went to Sunday school. I could tell all the stories. I could talk about David and Goliath I could quote this scripture and that scripture. I knew all this stuff by heart. I memorized that book and that book. I had all this stuff. And then it hit me. Something is missing. And that his... Righteousness in the law was woefully short compared to God's actual standard, and the conviction became alive in him, and he repented. I revive, or sin revived, and I die. Verse ten, almost done. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Paul has spent his entire life believing that obedience enough to the law was going to save him. He was taught and told others that the law would save his life. That salvation was in the law. Righteousness was in obedience to the law. That if he was obedient enough, he could be saved. And then all of a sudden that which he had so much faith in to save him Turned out, it couldn't save him at all. When you stare in a mirror, all the mirror does is show you what is actually there, right? It shows you the exact reflection of what's before it. The mirror cannot shave you, the mirror can't wash your face, the mirror can't brush your teeth, the mirror can't put on makeup. All the mirror can do is show you what needs to be done and how short you are. Right? When I wake up in the morning, my hair is everywhere, my beard is even worse than it normally is during the day. Right? My breath is stinky. Right? I, I look, I'm look. i looking rough. Okay? Uh, The mirror just shows me all that. But the mirror can't fix me up. Right? I'm relying on something outside of the mirror to fix what the mirror is showing me. In our case, it's Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the, you know, Paul had believed his whole life that the mirror could save him. And it can't. All it could do was show him how short he was. Can you imagine dedicating your life to something and now realizing that that all that you did, the guilt he must have felt, the shame, right, for all those people he hurt, to to destroy. destroyed. I mean, he had to deal with this on all the time. Everything he believed, everything he'd been taught, he studied under the best of the best. The best of the best. And he learned everything he'd been taught was for naught. When he says, sin revived and I died, that's a pitiful man. Right? When he says in verse 10, and the commandment which was to bring life, I found death. That's a man who has his eyes open and realizes everything I've strove for my whole life was meaningless. Mm -hmm. It's all about Christ. Now you see why he's so tied up about justification by faith. Why he, you know, God revealed to him that it is through faith alone and not works. That's why it was so important because he didn't want others to be like him. Mm-hmm. Strived their whole lives to be obedient enough to the law, only one day to find out that wasn't the right way to begin needed Christ. The law was just a mirror. Verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and it killed me. By being led to expect life from keeping of the law, but what he actually found was death, and convincing him that he was acceptable to God because of his own merit and his good works. He was deceived, believing that his own good works, his own merit, would save him. Verse 12. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. The law is holy. It does what it's supposed to do. It reflects our sinful nature to ourselves, and how bad and unregenerate we are, how lost we are, and that we need that we need Christ. So the law is an evil. The law is bad. The law does exactly what it's supposed to do. Show us how lost we are. Let us stand.
0: Thank you for your prayers and your continued support. May God richly bless you.